to you from God our Father, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Can you hear out there in the back? Thank you. <clears throat> you know, years ago, we wanted to breed one of our horses. Uh, actually, the idea never crossed my mind, but that's a whole different sermon. Anyway, we had to get all the paperwork in order, and that included um, uh, trying to track the horse's family tree back about three generations. Um, and then there was an actual physical inspection and uh, registration of our mare to certify her. Uh, there were big plans for a colt that, that would hopefully result from having been bred from a champion stallion. Now, whether or not all those plans, you know, would ever come to fruition is always unknown. It's sort of like um, back when you, you had the chance to buy apple stock in December of 1980 when it first was uh, offered at $22 a share. Who in the world would ever have dreamed that uh, one day uh, everybody would have a, a personal computer in their homes? Anyway, if the horse plan went as planned, then we would have papers to prove his lineage. Papers make all the difference in the value, right? It's the same thing with a dog. Uh, you might be able to find a purebred at a shelter, but if you wanted to be sure, you'd probably have to find a pricey breeder to get a dog with papers. Uh, not newspapers, but you probably need plenty of those too for the mistakes your new puppy might make. Those mistakes won't detract from its value, though, or how value he or she is to you with or without papers, because for most people, having a dog is all about the love, and we're okay with that. So how do we know we're okay with God? How do we know that we're as valuable to him as preachers keep on preaching? Because sometimes, especially when we're coming off a, a especially bad run of mistakes, uh, we might not feel so valuable. Uh, the easy answer, we've got the paper to prove it. Because the Bible tells me so. It's still all about the love. That's all you need to know, and it's more than enough for your average preschooler. Maybe sometimes you wish you could go back to those days when believing was so easy. But now you're all grown up, and life has happened, and it's, it's gotten a lot more complicated. But you know what? Jesus still loves you. Let me tell you one more thing before we really get into Paul's letter this morning. As far as God's concerned, you know, it's really not complicated at all. It's still just that easy. Any complication about it all being true is on our end, and it always has been. So in our second lesson this morning, the Apostle Paul is writing to the first century Christian church in Rome, about the little past the middle of the first century, probably. It's a time of terrible persecution. As a general rule, Rome would let people they conquered continue to worship their, their same gods they always did, um, at least as long as they gave a nod to the Roman gods once in a while and, and maybe a tribute now and then. Uh, and then later, of course, the, uh, the emperors declared their, uh, themselves a god and they had to offer tributes to them as well. But overall, it was a great way to help keep the peace. But the Christians couldn't do that. They knew there was only one true God, and they weren't shy about proclaiming it. As a result, they suffered, and many of them died clinging to that truth. They must have wondered why, if they had God so right, he would allow them to suffer so much wrong. And for wondering that, they must have wondered if they just overstepped and sinned against him in thought and word. Paul says it's okay. 
he, that God loved them, that they'd been set free on the inside. They lived at peace with the one who really mattered. He said, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, up to this point in his letter, and that's what it is, a letter that was written to, to the Christians in Rome, one that would be copied and circulated all through all the churches eventually. Um, he's been talking about how salvation came by faith alone in Jesus' righteousness for us. And by that faith, we're justified before God. A justification is an important Bible word. It is similar to what being pardoned means today. Um, you know, one of the great perks of being president of the United States is that um, you get to let previously convicted people out of jail. In the last days before an administration changes hands, there's usually a flurry of pardons and commutations. Now, the difference between a pardon and a commutation is important, too, and it's significant. A commutation shortens the sentence of a convicted offender still incarcerated, but it doesn't change the fact of that conviction or, or imply uh, any uh, innocence. Now, a pardon doesn't signify innocence either, either but it does all give free, uh, full legal forgiveness. It sets aside any ongoing penalty and restores all civil rights to that person. President Trump issued 143 pardons and 94 commutations. It was a new record on the stingy side of clemency. Clemency is simply the sum total of pardons and uh, commutations added together. Only two other presidents since 1900 granted fewer acts of clemency, George W. and George H.W. Bush. President Obama granted 1,927 clemencies, most of which were commutations. But if you want to know which presidents were the most forgiving, what you really have to do is look at the percentage of requests granted against the total number of requests received. And of the last five presidents, um, they all come in at under 10%. The most forgiving president seems to be Harry Truman uh, because he granted clemency to 41% uh, of petitioners. Now, does the sheer volume of forgiveness being awarded by a president reduce the significance of these acts of grace? You know, make the power to show mercy less special? Well, now if the pardon's given to you, because now you're the one who's been set free. You're outside the prison walls now. You can look up at the blue sky anytime you want to. You can go where you want, when you want. You still, you know, you might still be guilty. But whether it's a result of political expediency or a generous heart, you're free. There's no doubt about it. You're at peace with the government, and you have the papers to prove it. Justification is similar but different. It's a declaration by God of your innocence, not by God. Okay? Does it mean you never did anything wrong? That you have nothing to be sorry for? No. In fact, the Bible assures us that we're all guilty of sin. We lost and condemned. But it also tells us that Jesus was perfect for us in our place. And that took that he took our punishment, you know, our well-earned condemnation upon himself on the cross, where his own shed precious blood covered all our sins. In fact, it was enough to cover the sins of the whole world. But even though God's full and complete forgiveness is, is available to all people, that's called objective justification, 
objective justification, everyone isn't forgiven. So we connect to that forgiveness out there that's available by faith in Jesus' redeeming work for us. You know, God will even give you the faith to believe us as free gift through word and sacrament, what we call as means of grace. But everyone won't receive it because, well, they won't all accept it. Now, free will, right? We have, we have a choice. Faith connecting us to God's forgiveness is called subjective justification. Now it's not forgiveness in the general sense that it's out there somewhere to take advantage of, but by faith it's forgiveness in the personal sense. Okay, it means God has forgiven me. When God looks at us through the lens of our faith in his son, uh, he sees only righteousness. Our sins have been forgiven. And even more than that, they've been forgotten. And that's the group Paul is writing to this morning. And in the midst of their persecution, he reminds them of the blessings they've received as a result. The first blessing is peace. He says, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't some kind of feel-good emotion in the heart of a believer. This peace has a personal reality. It has an existence that's entirely separate from the believer because it's a peace that comes from God. He created it, and he provided it. Because this special peace only comes through faith in Jesus, the Son. The wrongs that separated us from God, the wrongs that created a gulf between us and God, really waged war against God, no longer exist. Now, by God's grace, his undeserved love and mercy, we can live at peace. Peace between ourselves and God, and peace with each other because we've been adopted into the family of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. You can begin, I hope you can begin to see what a huge thing this is. The sinner can do nothing to create that peace. In fact, if you look at a few verses ahead, you can see how Paul describes this in our natural state. He says, uh, we were weak, we were ungodly, we were sinners, and we were God's enemies. Our situation was hopeless, but God reconciled us, Paul says, through the death of his son. So now there's peace because God uh, has brought about that reconciliation. It's a done deal. And it's out there for, for all sinners to accept uh, by faith, every sinner. And when he does, or she does, or said, said in another way, when he doesn't refuse the gift, Suddenly, instead of fear and anxiety, there's this, this tranquil life of a believer, this, this special peace we feel inside. Because in part, I guess, because we now have continual access to God, and also because the gulf that sin had created between us has been bridged by Jesus' cross. But that's just the beginning. Not only is, is peace there for the present, but there's hope for the future. And that's the second blessing. Paul goes on, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You know, having a relationship with God here in this world is just a foretaste of what's waiting for us in the next. That hope fulfilled in the very presence of God himself. Knowing that we have a part in the glories of heaven allows us to bear up under the uh, inevitable crosses and, and troubles that will come into every Christian's life. And not only do they become bearable, but we can rejoice in the midst of them. 
We know that freed from the chains of darkness, we're under the care and, uh, of a loving God, a good and gracious God, one who can lead even our sufferings into good things like perseverance and character and hope. And hope does not put us to shame, Paul says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You know, imagine just for a second going through life without hope, without confidence that there's something beyond this world, something waiting, in a place of joyful reunions and freedom from the cares and concerns of this world. This hope is reliable because the person in whom it, it trusts is trustworthy and reliable. The object of our hope is God, who poured out his love into our hearts. In our English language, there are all sorts of attachment levels that we use the word love for. Um, we can love our job. We can love our spouse. We can love our family and friends. We can love animals or even worshiping in the great windy outdoors. In the Greek language that Paul was using, there are a few different words to express your level of love towards something. The one he uses for love here, <clears throat> the love we receive from God, is agape. In this case, it expresses a one-way, unreciprocated love coming entirely from God. Paul recognized, and he wants his readers to recognize, that from a holy, perfect God's point of view, there were no endearing qualities in rebellious humanity that moved or influenced him. It wasn't like in, in human uh, friendships when both parties sort of bring a few endearing qualities of their own to a relationship and, and from that a mutual affection can develop. It wasn't like that. Not even close. In the situation Paul is describing, all good things originate on God's side of the relationship. Remember, before being brought to faith, we were at war with God. And to emphasize this important truth, Paul addresses the timing of the whole thing. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. <clears throat> In his letter to the Galatian believers, Paul said something similar. When the time had fully come, he says, God sent his son, born of a woman. That not only suggests that God, perfect timing again, but also that Jesus was true man as well as true God. God had a plan to rescue fallen man from eternity. And everything happened according to his perfect timetable. Nothing we did could have or would have influenced that. And his timetable would never have been ours. Christ came while we were still weak, while we were still ungodly, still undeserving. While we were still sinners, Paul writes, Christ died for us. Even if we had wanted him to come, and a lot of people did look forward to God's salvation, it didn't affect his timeline. Nothing anyone could do would affect that. And we could never have imagined a scenario in which he would come when we were still at odds with him. You know, we would have thought maybe when everybody got their act together, everybody, you know, did what they were supposed to do, maybe we would reward them um, by coming to them with salvation. But it wasn't like that. In fact, when the world, for the most part, wanted nothing to do with him, that's when Jesus came. I mean, look at what happened to Jesus, what the world did to him. And yet it was ungodly people like us that he'd come to save. 
those who put his own innocent son to death on a cross because that's what needed to happen for him to become our once and for all time sacrifice for our sins. That's one way love. The kind you'd have to search far and wide in this world to, to find even, even a hint of. <clears throat> so back to the question, how do we know we're okay with God? Just look at what he was willing to do for you. You weren't just weak and powerless to save yourself. You were an ungodly sinner working against him. And still, Christ died for you, as he did for everyone. That's what allowed Paul to say in the previous chapter that our God is a God who justifies the wicked. Well, we live in hope. Justification is a present reality. And peace and hope bring joy. Even now, while we suffer and struggle in a sinful, fallen world. So, having made a pretty good argument for why we can go through this world rejoicing even in the tough times, he moves from his thoughts from the present time to the end time. Speaking in the future tense now, he says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. <clears throat> He's taking the long view now. Paul wants his readers to understand that God's love poured out in our hearts also gives us sure hope for the day of his eternal and final judgment, the day Christ returns, judgment day. He means that if God already did something that was so difficult, allowing his only son to suffer and die for our sins, innocent, sinless son, he'll surely do something that's easy. You know, we were once God's enemies, and, and God's son hung dead on the cross as a result. Now, we've since been reconciled to God, made right with God through Jesus' shed blood, and having been reconciled, uh, will be saved through his life. Our faith is resting on a living Savior, raised from the dead. And that gives us every, every right to have confidence in the promise that our future is secure. In fact, Judgment Day is something believers can look forward to. It will mean the restoration of all things. And in the meantime, while we're waiting, we can rejoice that God's love has provided a way back to him, even at such a great cost. He's saying that it's all good now, and it'll be even better in the future. God's love has triumphed at the cross and the empty tomb, and Jesus Christ's triumph over death in the grave will be our triumph one day. And that means that as we live and rest in his grace, we can enjoy his very special peace. You know, our times, now and forever, rest in him. We're okay with God. And we got the papers, his own word, to prove it. Amen. And now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.